right. Go ahead and take your Bible and open to Hebrews chapter 2. We're continuing our study through this great New Testament book, and we've spent the last couple of weeks in the first chapter where the author of Hebrews began exalting Jesus, showing that he is God himself. Hebrews 1.8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So he himself is God and that his coming and his, his saving work, as it, as, as it said from the first two or three verses, the coming of Christ and his saving work was the final and climactic word of God to us for our salvation. We should expect nothing post-Jesus other than Jesus' second coming. But remember who the author of Hebrews is writing to. He's writing to new Christians who had come out of uh, Judaism. And because of persecution, because of hardship, were being tempted to leave and leave the faith and leave Christ and go back to their old way of life. And um, As I said in the first two weeks of the study, the author does two main things. Throughout the whole book, he does, because that's the situation, the whole book is, is written to address that situation. And so he does two things repeatedly throughout the whole book um, to address that. One is he's constantly in new ways presenting how much better Jesus is than what it is that they left in, in Judaism. Uh, in the first chapter, it was angels and then later it'll be jesus is better than moses he's better than the priesthood he's better than the old testament sacrifices he i mean just over and over again jesus is better whatever you're tempted to go back to you're going back to something inferior jesus is better he's worth persevering for the second thing he does over and over again in hebrews is the flip side of that the, fir the first one is giving all the reasons to persevere the second is warnings against not persevering. Warnings against um, forsaking Christ because salvation is only found in him. Again, last week we looked at the majority of chapter 1 and we saw the author doing the first of those things. Showing namely how Jesus is better than the angels. His name is greater, we said last week. He is God the Son whereas angels are merely servants. He is worshipped. Only God is to be worshipped, and Christ is worshipped. In fact, angels worship Him. And His throne is higher. He rules over all creation, and angels serve to do His will. So why, why was the focus on angels? We said last week it was because Scripture testifies that it was angels who delivered the Ten Commandments to Moses. They were the intermediaries between God and man. God had already said no man can see God and live because he is holy and we are not. And there must be some intermediary between God and men. And in Moses' time, it was angels who came to do that. Angels were that intermediary who, who delivered the law uh, to Moses. And so, throughout Jewish history, angels were held in high esteem. And that's why they get such attention at the, at the outset of the book. But today, we come to chapter 2, and we come to the first of five. The first of five 
different instances in the book where the author issues a strong warning against leaving the faith and against leaving Christ, warning them against walking away from the only place where salvation is found. Again, there are five warning passages scattered throughout the letter, and some of them are long, so that in some ways it can feel like the whole letter is one long warning. But here are the five distinct warning passages in Hebrews. They are Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, which we're going to think about today. And then just a chapter later in chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, all the way through chapter 4, verse 13, is another warning. And then just another chapter after that, beginning in chapter 5, verse 11, all the way through chapter 6, verse 12. Then you go for a, a, a little bit of time without a warning, but then you come to chapter 10, and beginning in verse 19, through the end of that chapter, and then the whole of chapter 12 is a warning. So that's five, I mean, if you put, and some of those are long. Again, they span more than one chapter. And so it can almost feel like Hebrews is one unbroken warning. Uh, and, and that's on purpose. But today we're going to look at the first of those, Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. But in addition to, and so we're going to think about this, it's a, it's a short warning. It's the shortest of all the warnings. It's the first one. And, and we're, in addition to thinking about the specific warning found in these verses, Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, and since this is the, just the first of five longer and more elaborate and, specific, and, and, and detailed warnings, and this, this by con- comparison, is, the, relatively speaking, the easiest to understand and the simplest warning there is I want to say I want to I want to think about the specifics of this warning but I also want to say a broader word take this opportunity to say a broader word about the warnings in general in general in Hebrews Um, and how how biblically we ought to understand these warnings and 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 how we can feel the full weight of these warnings as they were intended but also how to understand how they fit with biblical truth about the eternal security of the believer. That's always a question that comes up when the, these passages get studied. They, they say, well, I thought if, if you were saved in Christ, you couldn't lose that salvation. So what's up with the warning? So we, well, I want to I think through that a little bit this morning. Um, think about this warning in particular very briefly and then say something about how to understand the warnings and how they function in general. So let's read the passage, Hebrews 2. Verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Let's pray. Father, this is Your holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, clear, and necessary Word. And uh, we recognize it to be that. Uh, and, and we don't know what what man penned these words of the letter to the Hebrews. But even that, we know it's your word. 
And uh, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the truth that is here. Give us minds to understand your truth. Give us hearts to embrace it wholeheartedly. Give us wills to obey and heed the warnings that is presented to us here. As well as heed the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, what I want to do is think about this from three different perspectives. Three different um, uh, angles. One has to do with the motive to persevere. Um, the, the first two of, the, two of these points is going to be looking specifically at this this specific warning. So he, he talks about the motive to persevere. And this is really just remind, recapping and reminding of all that he had said in chapter 1. Then the heart of this passage, it talks about the danger of drifting away. That's the, you know, that's the first verse. Pay clo- closer attention to what occurred, lest we drift away from it. If we do, how shall we escape? That's the warning. Main point. Those who are tempted to leave need to hear that we need to feel the force of this too. But in the end, I want us to zoom out and think about the purpose of the warnings in general. Uh, this is what I was talking about earlier, to see these warnings in light of other biblical truths. So let me f- say first a quick word about the motive to persevere. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because we've spent two weeks on it the past two weeks uh, where he's just recapping what he said in chapter 1. So let's look. The motive to persevere. You know that he's summing up chapter 1 in a sense because verse 1 of Hebrews 2 begins with the word therefore. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. And that, that word therefore means that he's drawing a conclusion based on all that he said before this. He says this and this and this and this and this. Therefore, now he's going to draw a conclusion. And, 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 and as he is actually entering into a warning against falling away, it shows you that he's, because he begins that warning with therefore, he's going to use all that he said in chapter 1 as a motivation to heed the warning. Persevere. Because of all these things we've said in chapter 1. And and, and what he says in the, in the verses that follow actually verify this. Because notice, if you're thinking about what he talked about in chapter 1, you see him recapping it early in chapter 2. Because he mentions in verse 2 how the Old Testament law was declared by angels. That's something that we've already talked about. And then he'll contrast that in verse 3 with the gospel actually being declared at first by the Lord. So that's exactly the comparison he was making in chapter 1. The gospel is superior because while angels are majestic, Jesus is God. And he brought the gospel. Then he expands on that in verses 3 and 4. To show that the new covenant altogether is better than the old covenant. Having said in verse 3, that, like we just see right there, that Christ was the Lord himself bringing the gospel, he goes on to say that this gospel was attested to us by those who heard. In other words, this gospel that he achieved, there were eyewitnesses to it. Uh, it's not just a story we're telling. It's, it, there were actually events that we're telling. It, it's, an, it's a literal historical accomplishment, so don't walk away from it. And he mentions the, uh, in verse 4 the, the, the signs and wonders and miracles done through the apostles that verified that message. Then he says at the end, and I'm, I'm flying through this because we've talked about this for two weeks. When he says that the new covenant in Christ is clearly better than the old covenant also because of the church, the, the reality of the church. 
uh, he says that when he talks about by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. What he's saying is uh, through the church, God is, it's not just that God demonstrated that the, the new covenant is better than the old at the first coming of Christ, and he did that in that one period of time. He showed that this was better than that. He's saying through the reality of the church, God is on an ongoing basis showing how it is better through the reality of the church. Uh, he has gifted and worked through the church in ways that he never did, the old covenant people of Israel. He has given gifts to his people and distributed them in the church according to his will. God has gifted his church in a new and remarkable way. And this, this idea, I won't spend a lot of time here either because it's going to be a major theme going forward, the church. The church and the gifts distributed to the church is an important motivation to heed the warning and to go he's going to because the church how we talk to each other how we interact with each other this is a god-given means of each of our perseverance he's going to use the church like for example later in chapter 10 uh when when uh he 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 says uh let me just i was gonna quote it from memory but i forgot it uh let us draw near with a true heart of full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together. The church is a big, a big motivation to persevere. So that's what he's doing in the, in the first point. He's wrapping up all that he said in chapter 1 and, and say, based on all of this, heed this warning. But here he's going to make that even more explicit when he talks about the danger of drifting away. So he spent the first, whole first chapter talking about how Jesus is better. And you recap some of that here in the opening verses. The main point, like I said, of these verses is to make clear as possible the danger of drifting away. The danger of falling away from their faith in Christ and persevering in him. So he says, or not persevering in him. He says in verse 1, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. We must every word of scripture is important we must pay much closer attention it is necessary that's 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 another way of translating this it is necessary that you pay much closer attention so somebody might say well that's teaching us that perseverance is necessary and somebody might say that didn't say anything about perseverance it just says pay attention but that word Pay attention, pay much closer attention, has been translated in a lot of different ways in the New Testament, several times in the Gospels especially, a number of times in the Gospel, uh, that word is translated beware. Beware. Therefore, we must beware. We must really beware of what we have heard. So it has that sense too. Beware of drifting away from what you've heard. And he'll say the same thing in different words in verse 3 when he says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How do you neglect such a great salvation? You ignore it. You ignore its truth. You ignore the seriousness of it. You ignore the warnings against drifting away as if that is not really a possibility with you. You could drift away, and I could too. 
We ignore those warnings. That's neglecting. That's what it means to neglect. And notice the language of verse 1 also is of drifting away. Lest we drift away. And we've talked about that a lot. That's how it happens. That's how it happens. Most people don't have a sudden, dramatic turn away. Like you are loving Christ with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and you are following hard after him, and then the next day you turn away. That's not how it happens. It happens by slowly and steadily falling in love with other things. Drifting away from Christ. And that comes through neglect. That's what it says in verse 3. Not paying serious attention to ourselves. And not paying serious attention to what the Scriptures teach. Or really believe the truth that it's saying. Or really believe the warnings like this one. Or the four others that are going to follow it. Lengthy and detailed warnings. And the crux of this warning is, is the... Uh, it's not on the screen, but it's in verse 3. The crux of the warning is the first words of verse 3. How shall we escape? And it doesn't provide the answer because it's assumed. We won't. We won't escape. And that's what I want us to think about for the rest of our time is this warning. How shall we escape if we neglect this great salvation? What if we drift away from it? Because again, this is the first of five warnings in the letter. So we're going to have plenty of time to think carefully through the specifics of the warnings. This is the, this is the simplest of all the five. It's really short. It's really to the point. There's not a whole lot of intricacy in it to have to parse or tease out. It's just really how to escape if you neglect it. What if you drift away? Pay careful attention so you don't drift away. I want to think about warnings from a broader perspective for the rest of our time this morning. And we may, we may move through this rather quickly. But I want to try to give us a framework for understanding uh, and making biblical sense of these warnings in, in, in general. Because there's a right way to understand them. There's a wrong way to understand them. A helpful way to do it and a dangerous way to do it. And to help us understand the purpose and design, I want to get some help from maybe an unlikely place that you might not have anticipated. Hold your place and find the book of Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27. This is a story of the Apostle Paul sailing on a ship to Rome and having a shipwreck. This is the purpose of the warnings. So the story of a storm and, a, and an eventual shipwreck is itself an interesting story. And there's, if you're reading through Acts, there's several lessons you could get from it. But I want us to think about this story in Acts 27 a little more deeply and consider what it could teach us about the warning passages in Hebrews or warning passages anywhere in the New Testament. Uh, like, like the one we're looking at today. Because they can be puzzling. Before we read this story... Before we read Acts 27, I want to I set the stage for why, in case, you, in case you've never thought, well, why are these warnings puzzling to some? 
Okay, here's why they're puzzling to some. Because, because of what we read in other passages. There are a lot of other passages that seem to indicate very clearly and unmistakably that believers cannot lose their salvation. They cannot drift away fully and finally if they are in Christ or fall away from the faith. Consider passages like Philippians 1.6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. You didn't begin the good work in you. God began the good work in you. Salvation is God's work from beginning to end. He began it, and he's not going to change his mind. He will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. There's no room for wiggle in there. God finishes what he starts. He's the one that started your salvation. He will finish it. Philippians 1, 6. Or remember the, the great promise after promise after promise in John's gospel, especially chapter 6. John 6 is amazing. You go home and read John 6. Oh, I missed one. Oh, yeah, a good one. In Jude, 1, 24, Jude 24. This is like the, 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 uh, the, the last words of this one chapter letter of Jude. It's benediction. It says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his presence of his glory with great joy. So there he is. There it again. God is able to keep you from stumbling. So now let's get to John 6. John 6, 37. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If you have come to Jesus in genuine repentance and faith, it's because the Father gave you to him, and he'll never cast you out. That's a great promise. Just two verses later, verses 39 and 40, Jesus says again, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. If there's a thousand days, if there's 5,000, 10,000 days between now and the last day, the promise remains, He'll raise you up on that last day. Pretty stout. Just a few verses later after this, same chapter. John 6, 44. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. I mean, he says it over and over and over again. He's not kidding. Not only that, but this is John writing. John didn't just write his gospel. He actually wrote three letters and the book of Revelation. But in, in his first of three letters, 1 John, he says in 1 John 2, 9, 2, 19, excuse me, 1 John 2, 19, now this is a tongue twister, but think about it. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. He's saying there were some who were together with the church and some left the fellowship. And John is saying right here, they never were really of us. He's saying if they had been 
of us. If they had really been born again, they would have continued with us. That's what he's saying. They would have continued. But they left, and, and by their leaving, it became plain that they never were really a believer. That's huge. That's huge. He's saying right there that those who do fall away didn't lose their salvation. He's saying those who do fall away, those who do drift away, never were really saved to begin with. They were not of us. That's his language right there. True believers don't fall away. That's a huge point not to miss. Probably the best example of all of the believer's eternal security in Christ is Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30. Paul writes, for those whom he foreknew, this is God, whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That goes from eternity past to eternity future. Just as surely as we were predestined in eternity past, just as surely we will be glorified with Christ in eternity future. That's that. he, God promised it. He guarantees it. He started it. He'll finish it. It's by grace. It's not by works. We don't earn it. We can't lose it. That's what it's saying. Over and over and over again. That's the clear testimony of the Bible. So do you see the apparent rub? It says... All those who come to me, I will never cast out. Those who come to me, I will raise him up on the last day. But don't drift away. How shall you escape if you walk away from this? Well, how shall you escape if you walk away? I thought Jesus said, I'll never let you go. The, the scriptures seem to abundantly and adamantly teach that God... Those whom God saves never lose their salvation. On the other hand, there are places like Hebrews with unmistakable warnings against falling away. So how do we understand those things? And what does the story about a shipwreck in Acts 27 have to teach us about that? I think some details that we read in the story of Paul's shipwreck during a storm at sea give us a clue, I hope they do, to understanding the intersection between promises of salvation and warnings against falling away so let's see how it might help us untie the theological knot we've so far described so if you found acts 27 it's not gonna be on the screen so just read it in your bibles let's read uh well i guess the whole chapter i'm sorry beginning verse one and when it was decided that we should set sail for italy they delivered paul and some other uh prisoners to a centurion of the augustan cohort named julius and embarking in a ship of, I don't know how to pronounce that, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when... We had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia. We came to Myra at Lycia. There, were, there, there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. 
We sailed slowly for a number of days and with difficulty uh, off, I don't know how to pronounce that either. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near, the, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous because, of the fa- because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor, harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest and spending the winter there. Man, that's so brave guys. Maybe we'll make it. Um, now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave, gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a, a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. Oh, <laughs> uh, making friends. Uh, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, for, uh, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. As, and as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship they had, and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes in the ship, uh, in the, of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, have, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food. It will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. 
And when he had said these things, he took bread, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they, were all, then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were all, in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim in a way and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. So it was that they were all brought safely to the land. What in the world does that have to do with Hebrews chapter 2? Let's think. Okay, so in, 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 in the book of Acts, in recent chapters leading up to 27, it's been telling the story of Paul's ordeal of Enduring accusation after accusation and trial after trial just for being a Christian, just for preaching the gospel. At the end of chapter 26, Paul had appealed to plead his case before Caesar himself in Rome. Now, Caesar was a title, by the way, not a name. Um, so this is not him appealing to Julius Caesar, who lived much before this, but he's, he's appealing to stand before Nero, the Roman emperor Nero. So in chapter 26... He had appealed to get away from the courts he had been in, go to court in Rome before Nero himself. And so in chapter 27, this is where he's headed. He's sailing for Rome. Uh, but he says it wasn't without difficulties, and it would eventually lead to shipwreck. It's a really fascinating story, and I think if we think about it carefully, it can teach us a few things about Hebrews' warnings. Beginning in verse 13, Luke describes with the increasing intensity of the storm. By verse 18, uh, it says that they were being violently storm-tossed. And I suppose Paul could sense the anxiety among the sailors. He's about to give them a, a big fat, I told you so. But so in verse 22 of this story, he makes them a promise. He says, yet now I urge you to take heart. Here's the promise. There will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. In other words, nobody is going to die. That's the promise. I can't say so much for the ship, but the people will be saved. Nobody's going to die. That's the promise. How did he know that? Because he says in verses 23 and 24, an angel of the Lord had appeared to him in a dream and told him that very thing. So he says in verse 25, he reiterates that promise again and says, take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I, as I have been told. Nobody is going to die. Everybody's going to be saved. Then something interesting happens. Several days later, they faced another potential danger while at sea. And it says in verse 30, uh, the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship. They were seeking to escape from the ship. And it appears that they were going to, maybe at best, 
go for a lifeboat or something, I don't know. But when Paul found out about that, when Paul found out that they were seeking to escape from the ship, what did he do in verse 31? He issued a warning. In verse 31, he says, Unless these men stay in the boat, you cannot be saved. In other words, jump and you'll die. But wait a minute. I thought Paul had already made a promise to them twice in verse 22 and 25 that nobody would die. Nobody's going to die. God told me nobody's going to die. Nobody's going to die. So how does he in verse 31 say, if you jump, you'll die? There's a promise and a warning. How does that work? I'll tell you. In this story, after Paul issued the warning, it says in verse 32 that they cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and they let it go. They stayed in the boat because of the warning. In other words, the warning aided the promise. The warning helped the promise come true. The warning kept them in the boat, which kept them alive, which kept the promise that was made. Nobody died. And I think that's exactly the way the warnings in Hebrews work on a larger level. God has made abundant promises to us that if we're truly saved, if we're truly born again, we will never lose that, that, that salvation. But many times we're tempted to veer off and drift away from the straight and the narrow path that we've been given. And God uses warnings. He uses warnings to keep us on the path of salvation. Nobody's going to die, but if you jump, you'll die. God has, God has promised to keep you into the end, but if you drift away, it's a warning. And the warnings, what do they do? The warnings keep us coming back to faith in Jesus. The, warn us, the warnings keep us coming back again and again to repentance and faith. And that's how it happens that we make it to the end and Jesus raises it up on the last day. The warnings don't contradict the promise. They help fulfill the promise. You see? It's very true that if those sailors jumped, they would die. It's also very true that if we turn away from Jesus, we won't be saved. But in both cases, the warnings kicked in and helped the promise to come true. Paul warned them they didn't jump, they stayed in the boat, and they lived. And Hebrews warns us we stay trusting in Christ and we are saved. And That's how the story, I think, of a shipwreck can help us understand a much deeper theological question, but it leads to this conclusion. Even as believers, we need to heed the warnings. There's a bunch of them in Hebrews. We need to heed the warnings. And the warnings tell us that the temptation to drift away from Christ is real. So let's pay attention to the warning. Let's examine ourselves by the warning. Here's, here's the bottom line. Those who do fall away and don't heed the warning don't lose their salvation. They prove they never had life in them to begin with. The sign that you have life in you from the Holy Spirit is that you do listen to the warning and you keep coming back to Jesus. That's a beautiful and, and, and helpful word to us.